Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. Today we have Klaus Potch with us, who will take us through the story of Esther. She had the guts to confront a king and save a whole nation from extinction. Klaus will take us from historical backgrounds to the rise of beautiful Esther to become a queen. But we will also learn about the plot of Haman and how Esther risked her life to save her people. And at the end, Klaus will point out what lessons we can learn from this story for our own lives. So now let's hear Klaus speak. So good morning, everybody. I'm so happy to be here and that the ties between the Grace Church, Theo and me are still intact. I remember the first time we met was 30 years ago, more than 30 years, 31, I think. So let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, especially for the book of Esther. I pray that you would um, give me your spirit to explain and talk about the content and what you want to tell us with it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we have the first slide, please. Esther is a girl with guts. And a subtitle we could name The Unnamed Genie. So first, the historical background. Last time I was standing here, I was talking about um, Daniel chapter 9. And historically, the book of Esther follows, it is after, it had to be placed after that, what happened in Daniel's book. So, the Jews were in exile, lasted 70 years. It started in 605 at the Battle of Carchemish, where Nebuchadnezzar um, beat the um, Egyptians and also the, uh, conquered the uh, land of Palestine. And in 539, Nebuchadnezzar's empire was overthrown by, um, by the Medes and Persians. 536, the exile ended. But in 538... Cyrus the Great made a decree and allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple. Some of the Jews living in um, Persia or in Mesopotamia returned to Palestine, about 50,000, but some stayed. Keep in mind, some stayed in, uh, under the government of the Persian king. And um, in 520, Darius confirmed the previous decree. Uh, what I show you now, the following slides, you don't have to take notes. I will send out in a few weeks after I've reworked the text of the sermon into a kind of an overview over the book with illustrations like here. Um, with all the tables, you can read them. You don't need to mention them, but you, you will get them. I will send the file to Theo, and then he can pass it on. So, here are the kings of Achaemenid Empire. Yeah, here we are. The ones in red are the important kings. Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon. And Xerxes the Great, this is our king in the book Esther. What about the Medo-Persian Empire? What was it like? It was an absolute monarchy. The king's word was law. When he said something, it was written down and couldn't be changed, even not by himself. So he had to work around it if he wanted to uh, have second thoughts and so on. 
It was organized in 127 provinces, so it must have been really great. The next slide will show you a map. Had a queen and a harem. Of course, this was custom in that area. And I mentioned already 50,000 Jews returned and, uh, during Darius. And it is recorded in Ezra chapters 1 to 6. This is the Achmenid Empire. Here, the eastern part is the Indus River, which is now Pakistan. Palestine was under his rule as well, and northern um, Egypt and Libya. And here it extended to Macedonia. So, when you are that large and that powerful, you have appetite for more. And the appetite was that he would inhale or conquer Greece. I don't know why it was so attractive. Was it the culture? Was it financially so rich? But at least it had a really high uh, standard of living. So the Persians started to attack it. And here's the kind of the timeline. Started with the Yonan revolt. Then the Persians invaded it the first time around 492 and 492. The years are all before Christ, B.C. Yeah? And then there was the interbellum. That means the time between the wars. There was the famous battle at Marathon. The nice thing, you know the story where we have the marathon race. Now the people don't have to fight a battle and then run, but they only have to run, no, without fighting. And then comes the, uh, the second, but it, the final is marathon. They landed with their ships near Athens, but they couldn't conquer Greece fully. So the Persians thought, okay, we have to start a big, a massive campaign and conquer it finally and, and just finish them the deal. So they came in 480 at the Thermopyle. That was a land battle. The, Greek, the Greeks were defeated by a traitor leading the Persian army around the pass. And also at Artemisium, which is close by, and it was a sea battle, and the Greeks of, of, again had to retreat. But in 480, the same year, they lured the fleet of the Persians into a narrow gulf, and the, and the Persians with their large men of our sh ships couldn't maneuver quite well, and the Greeks with their small boats finished the navy. And so Xerxes went home, said, okay, no, <laughs> I cannot finish the deal, and left Bardonius there with the army, and overwind and try to um, uh, finish up the deal. But it wasn't successful. The battle at Plataea, the Greeks won, and that was more or less the end of the whole confrontation. Here's a map. Thermopylae are here. Here's the Cape Artemisium. Both battles were successful for the Persians. Athens is here. Sarah missed the sea battle. The final decisive battle is here. And you see uh, yeah. who was for, under the influence of the Persians, this was this, this kind of brownish uh, area. Macedonia was a vassal state. The gray ones were more or less neutral. 
and just the, the purple area was fighting the Persians. Can you imagine such a small part of Greece confronting or uh, standing up against the Persians? It, I'm not a military expert, but it has to do first, I mentioned it with the, the size of the ships. If you, if you choose the battleground, you can win. Also, the, the weapons of both armies were a little bit different, so this must have also be make the difference. So, what I will tell you now coming to the book of Esther, it sounds like a fairy tale. I will tell you the fairy tale, but at the end there will be a modern-day fairy tale, which is very interesting. And if you analyze the book a little bit, it's the book about feasts. It starts with the feasts of the king, Asverus, then come the feasts of Esther, and finally come, comes the feast of the Jews. So, who are the main characters in this story? The who? Ahasuerus, that's the Greek name. Uh, the, uh, the Persian name, uh, the, sorry, the Hebrew name, and Xerxes is the Greek name. And the names in between are Babylon, uh, Persian and Aramaic. They're for me unpronounceable, so I, I let you do it if you want. If you find somewhere, um, um, uh, someone who, can, who is familiar with these pronunciations, you can do it. And then comes Esther, but the biblical root is S-T-R. Interesting, because at that time, the languages did not write the vowels. And that's very interesting, because in Hebrew, it means to conceal, to hide. So Esther, with her name, hid her nationality. Evidently, there were resentments against the Jews, were they successful? Now, we have nowadays resentments in, in, against Jews in some areas, anti-Semitism and so on. But here, Esther is the, the biblical name, uh, but her Hebrew name was Hadassah, which means myrtle. In Persian, Stara is the star. You see, everywhere is the S-T-R root. And Ishtar is the Babylonian goddess of love. So she is the star of the story. And when you see the pictures, the pictures that um, appear are part of the calendar of, I think, 2013 that I, I drew. It was in honor of my mother-in-law. I tried to do this because we didn't know how long she would live. She would live after that, probably still five years, but I said to be on the safe side. So her name was Esther. And guess what? Her second name was Myrtle. So, Esther, Esther, or Myrtle, Myrtle, Fieldhouse was her name, so that's in honor of her. The Esther had lost her parents in her youth, and her cousin Mordecai took over and uh, raised her. M-R-D-K are the consonants, and they are coming from Mardukaya. It's a Babylonian god. Also, kind of hiding his upbringing, his ancestors, where he's from. And there's Haman the Agagite. 
He was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And if you remember, when, the, um, Israel, when Israel went through Sinai and wandered around and then finally got the permission of, from God to enter the Holy Land, the Amalekites didn't want to let them in. So they fought. And because of, uh, they did that, and God promised their doom. It didn't come immediately, but there was a war between Israel and the Amalekites, and Saul led the battle, and he, he had got the order from God to kill all. He didn't obey it completely. He killed everybody except the king. And the king, and the king Agag was an ancestor of Haman. And therefore, Haman had a bill open with the Israelites. We'll see this, that the, the, came, uh, the conflict between Mordecai and Haman goes from the beginning to the end of the book. So he was a natural or logical bad guy. The what? As I told you, it's the book about the feasts. First, Ahasuerus' feast, then Esther's feast, and then the feast of the Jews. The the book of Esther starts in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign in 483. In the years of the preparation for his expedition towards Greece, Persia was at the climax of its power, and the planning phase seemed to be held within the 180 days that are called feasts. He called all the officers, the, the leaders of the provinces, maybe to lay out the plans, discuss the moves, the preparations, and so on. After these 180 days, there was a seven-day feast. Actually, if you want to uh, be precise, it was a drinking feast. And it was given in Susa, the capital of, of, the empire, of his empire, and he assembled all important people. The princes, the army officers, the nobles, and the, uh, uh, the nobles of the provinces. And he wanted to show off his riches and also the beauty of his queen. So he called for Vashti, was her name, come and present yourself in the royal, in the uh, well decorated with all the jewelry and so on. But she refused. Probably she said, I don't want to be and be with all these drunken men. So she said, no, I have my own feast and stayed where she was. This didn't, uh, wasn't to the liking of Asuerus, and he divorced her. He said, this should not be an example for other couples, marriages. You can interpret it, it was the beginning of the women's lib movement. Don't take orders from your husband. Yeah? But then was the, probably the, the expedition to Greece, and after that, uh, the king needed consolation. He needed someone, something positive. So he said, well, I need a queen. So the, he sent, the people sent out, he sent out messengers into all of the provinces to, to, to get together the most beautiful virgins and bring them in. And the nobles did not suggest their daughters because they feared what happened to Vashti might happen to their daughters when they, when they uh, would be uh, queen. 
Well, the ones from the provinces came and they were prepared for the selection day or for the competition. Six months in oil, yeah? Preparation in oil and so on to get the um, skin and six months in spices, probably to make them really hot. And there was also Mordecai who said, oh, Esther, you have to enter the contest as well. So he got her in, being kind of her manager, like all some people like skiers, all the stars, musicians, they need managers, football stars. Yeah. So he was her manager. He, she entered the harem, and where she was, and the harem is a beauty farm, where she was prepared for her role and checked on her from time to time from outside the wall. How he did this, I have no idea. There were windows and the eunuchs that uh, were in charge of the harem probably uh, exchanged messages with him and her. And at the end, the king tested the candidates, calling him in in the evening, one after the other, and uh, letting them go in the morning. I would say this is massive premarital sex. Um, one day it was her turn, Esther's turn, and she listened to the counsel of the eunuch that was responsible for her, and she did everything what he suggested, take this uh, dress, take this um, jewelry, and so on, take this perfume, he knew everything. And it was done, and um, uh, during this time, also Mordecai, who was always outside the wall and to be found at the city gate, where he overheard the plot that was, um, the content of the plot was to kill the king. Esther was already queen. She found favor in the eyes of, of Ahasuerus, and she had access to the king, and Mordecai told her, and she told Ahasuerus about the plot and the Two culprits, the two eunuchs, were executed immediately. Next on the scene is Haman. He became number two in the empire. Why and how, we don't know. People should, but he was so important, or felt so important, that people should bow before him. Well, at that time, Bowing before someone, as we learned in uh, Daniel chapter 3, where there was the golden statue, and people had to bow, and also in Switzerland, the Gesslerhut, yeah? people had to bow there and uh, pay their reverence. That's nothing for simple people, especially for the Jews. Before bowing, you bow before God, but not before a king or someone number two. So he refused to bow, and Haman said, okay, if, he probably knew that, that Mordecai was Jewish. And he said, well, I'll state an example, and I will kill all the Jews in the empire. Well, not a good idea, probably the start of anti-Semitism. And if you remember, there was in, also this century uh, a man called Ahmadinejad, an Iranian president, the sixth one from 2005 to 2013. He wanted to throw the Israelites into the Mediterranean Sea. Same thing, yeah? 
get rid of them all. But this wasn't done. He couldn't achieve it. History repeats itself because people don't learn from history. So what did Haman do to, um, in his plan to destroy the Jews, kill them all, to cast the lots, when to start and when to do it? So he called the, um, cast the lots, and in the language, in his language, is called pur lot. We will learn this later on. We will see what this has to do. Um, and Haman offered the king 10,000 talents of silver if he would allow uh, him to do his campaign. The, key, the, uh, the king gave his signet ring to him. That means he had the authority to send out a decree in the king's name. And, but the king said, do as you please. And said, but I don't need the 10,000 talents of silver, which was anyhow a massive amount of money. So you get an idea. The king was so rich that he didn't need 10,000, additional 10,000 talents of silver. But what was now, the, the decree went out. Sorry, I think I missed a little bit. See, this was the harem, and this was overhearing the plot. Mordecai not bowing. And then the, the letters went out to the provinces. The Jews were now on death row. All were in danger. So Mordecai heard about this, what was going on in, in the palace. I just wonder, was he part of the Mossad or was Mossad already existing? And Esther learned also from Mordecai what went on. And Mordecai asked her to step in for her people. And she, in the beginning, she kind of said, oh, no, I'm not so sure if I can do this, if I can talk to the king about it, because she had to talk to the king about the decree that was, was written uh, about the killing of the Jews. And she said, if I go unsummoned, unannounced into the king, king's present, this is a death penalty. I can't be executed unless the king says, okay, you can come in. And so this was kind of, I'm, I really don't want to do this, but Mordecai said, maybe you are now queen and God put you in that role. God is not mentioned, yeah, by the way. You were put into that place that you are able to fight or speak for your people. And finally she said, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the most well-known verse of the whole book. If I perish, I perish. So, just give you an idea how well kept the information about Esther was in the, in the palace. The eunuch knew, the maidens knew, the king did not know, Haman did not know. Yeah? And the Jews did what Esther said. 
and it came to, after three days, Esther went into the king, into his presence, and the custom was the king had a scepter, and if he extended the scepter to the incoming person, he gave his permission for the person to approach. So she was saved because the king extended his scepter. And Esther invited the king and Haman for a banquet. Well, both were flabbergasted and accepted the invitation. The idea behind was probably to present her request why she wanted the audience with the king in a smaller circle, not that everybody around in the court heard it. So, Haman, don't forget, Haman's decree to kill the Jews in effect. And um, Haman, of course, and, and the king did not know about Esther being Jewish, otherwise they would have said, oh no, you're, you will be killed anyhow, we, we don't deal with you. The threat is prepared for Mordecai as an example for the Jews. Having, when leaving the palace, Haman passed Mordecai at the gate. He recognized Mordecai's determination not to get up and bow down. And he was sitting in sack, uh, sackcloth and ashes. I think so far I'm at the point where you in the small group have already read the book. Good. So, coming home, Haman boasts among friends and in, in his family, I'm the only one to, with the king to be invited to, uh, to a banquet that Esther will give. Well, and he was so proud that he said, okay, I'll start an example with Haman so that the people would have a foretaste of what will happen in the future. He set up the gallows and I will hang a Mordecai. Well, the king had a sleepless night. Why and what he was thinking about, I don't know. But he probably remembered the plot against him and the assassination that was planned. And ever, since in that time everything was recorded, he asked for the records to be brought in, and he read there that Mordecai was not honored for finding out the plot and more or less saving the king's life. And... I'm not sure if he slept an hour or not at all. In the, it was already getting morning and he heard hammering of when the gallows were already prepared. And Haman, of course, wanted to be the first to watch this, um, the execution, was also there. And um, Asverus did not know what to do. Mordecai was a Jew. He wanted to honor him. This is a contradiction. What should he do? So he needed someone with intelligence and insight. So Haman was at hand. He said, Haman, come in um, and tell me, what would you do if the king wants to honor someone? But he didn't say that the honor that he was asking for was meant to be for Mordecai. So the, Haman says, well, I would give the person the royal robe, uh, let him sit, or let the person sit on the, 
royal horse and parade with him, having um, the person moved around or led around city. This was not a city tour like here in the topless um, buses, red, red line, blue line. This was horse line. And that brings he, Haman thought, oh, this honor is something for me. Yeah? He was so selfish, he must have been a narcissist in my eyes. This reminds me of a situation. I was once at a conference in Tulsa in, in Arkansas. And there was, at the beginning of the conference, there's always a, a big assembly in the, in the big hall. And there, there was an escalator that led you up to the next floor. And on top of that floor, there was a guy standing. I thought, what is, what is he doing there? Nothing to do. He just greeted everybody or wants to be seen. This was also one of these Haman types. But now the point, the, the point, um, the fate goes now against Haman. The king says the honor should be bestowed on Mordecai, not on you. And Haman had to, to lead Mordecai with a horse sitting on the horse around town. When they were done with that, Everybody went to its, his place. Mordecai to, his, to the gate where it's always to be found, and Haman went home. He was so wild and furious inside, he needed a sounding board. Yeah? I, I think you know that if you're, in a, uh, if you're overjoyed or in, in very sorry or very sad, you need someone to talk to. So he went home and talked to his family. And of course, they uh, were giving their etzes to him. And they said, well, if Mordecai is a Jew, you will not overcome him. You will lose. And last century, someone had the same idea. It was Adolf. He thought he could kill all the Jews. He reached for the apple of God's eye, as we said, his people. The death that was meant for the Jews reached himself. Whether he was killed or suicide, nobody knows anymore. Well, and now comes, and so the family and the friends prophesied um, Haman's doom, his death. And there was the second banquet. And of course, they were drinking first day, and on the second day, the king said, Esther, what is your request? Um, she said, well, um, there's someone trying to kill my people, and I'm one of them, the people, the Jews. And the king asked, well, who is the culprit? Who does, does so was? And she said, this is one, the one, Haman. Haman froze. And... Of course, um, the king was so furious that he had to cool down. So he went into the garden. And meanwhile, Haman was pleading with King Esther, uh, Queen Esther for his life. Please let me live. And he was on her knees, on his knees, probably close to Esther. And the king returned and, and thought he's either attacking her or in, in some other dramatic position towards her. And she, she said, there are the gallows, 
up with him. Let's hang him. So this is what the family prophesied was immediately executed the next uh, the two days later. Now, Esther had, since it was the banquet, and she asked for a second audience. And the king again extended his sept and said, what is your plea? What is your request? And she, she said, well, more or less, I'm Jewish. I want to survive, and I want to uh, plead for my people that they all survive. And this is now, that's a critical situation. There's a decree to kill all Jews. It cannot be revoked or changed. What do we do? So some were thinking, okay, we need a counter-decree, a decree that cannot be um, sent out, a decree that says, the last decree is not valid anymore, so there had to be something that counteracts. And the content was to give the Jews permission when they were attacked to defend themselves and kill the attackers. So Mordecai got the authority by the, uh, with the signet ring from the king to send out letters and carry the plan out to do so. So he sent out the letters. The people knew when the attack would be, and the, and the Jews could prepare for defense. And the tables turned, and when they sent out, of course, not here. In all languages, they had to send out the letters. You see here the scribes with the Keilschrift, yeah. And they succeeded. They achieved to defend themselves and to subdue the enemies. And, of course, there was joy about it. Mordechai said, well, in uh, memory of our victory, we call the f there will be a feast every year to remember that, and we call the feast Purim. The im is the plural of pur yeah, in Hebrew or in the language there. And the, that was the Feast of the Jews, the third part of the feast uh, that we find in the book. And now to the summary. And the feast was why I chose this topic as a, um, uh, as a topic just before Christmas. They were so joyful, they extended gifts, food, and had, uh, eating and drinking, they were joyful. That's the same thing what Christmas is all about. It's the joy that they were saved, that we are saved now. The Savior has come and offered us to believe in him and therefore be, uh, get eternal life. And they got life again, although they were on death row already. So, the key word for me to, to think about this was presents. Christmas, you get presents, and they exchange presents. So is it an Old, Old Testament present, um, Christmas story? Maybe. But what is the book all about? The book is about the fail, the fall, and the rise of one man, Mordecai. The rise and the fall of another man, Haman. 
the courage of the queen to break boundaries to save her people. It's about an undecided king who needed counsel all the time. And you read a lot the expression, oh king, if it pleases you, do this and that. Yeah, so he's listening so much to his counselors. And then it is about the undecided genie, the one who is the director of history, the one who orchestrates the events, and that is God. Nowadays, we don't see God in person. The only We don't have um, prophets or um, epiphanies, experiences with God, theophanies, sorry, theophanies, where you see God in your dream. Or so. This, to my knowledge, doesn't happen anymore. So, we don't see God, and still, we see things happen, and we know, okay, God did that. Yeah? Like little things, my shoes were falling apart. So I needed instantly shoes. So I went and said, okay. My daughter said, well, you should get leather shoes because the old ones were plastic. So I said, let's go. I said, went to Donut Centrum. I couldn't find anything. Then I went to Getrei, to Schnäppchen. There was a shop that's called Schnäppchen, yeah? I got these shoes for 70 euros. They were marked originally 180. I thought, only God can do that. Small thing, but I loved it. And the lesson, what we get, you show civil courage. That was Esther, be ready to sacrifice for your people and do not isolate yourself from your environment so that you need, so you are dependent on others to get counsel. And I remember we had, I had a boss who was responsible for research and development in the company and what I would have done to find out what in which direction research and development should go, I would go out to the departments and ask and talk. I said, well, I sent out a letter and they should report to me. I thought, that's not the way. Eh? But that's my, my approach. The next thing is, with arrogance, you won't win. That's Haman. God Recognition come, comes late, may come late, or not at all. You'd never know. You get a title, some people get a medal or some, some yeah, decoration for the open bar. Yeah? <laughs> That's shiny. But some go unnoticed. Yeah? As, as um, Murphy says, no God deed goes, um, every good deed goes unnoticed. Yeah, that's how it phrased it. Then you should celebrate, God holds his hand over his people, and you should celebrate your salvation. And although God is not mentioned, he is still active. And now comes the last part, which is the modern-day fairy tale, and it's for me it's so emotional, Philip will read it. 
The recent parliamentary elections in Italy saw the neo-fascist party Fratelli d'Italia as the winner. Giorgia Meloni is the first woman to form and head a government in Italy. Before the president of Italy assigned Meloni to form the government, the president of the parliament and the president of the second chamber, the Senate, had to be elected. In this interim situation, the oldest member of the Senate presides the election in the Senate. History granted a special moment to the 92-year-old Lilian Segre. To the day, 100 years ago, the fascists stated that they started the dictatorship with the march to Rome. In her speech, Lilian Segre talked about her life. She, being of Jewish background, was prevented from going to elementary school due to the racial laws. But the little girl who had to leave her school bench returned at age 14 as one of the few children from the concentration camp Auschwitz-Birkenau, and many years later to the most important bench of the moment. Her family did not survive. Her speech was well received by all parties, as everybody, no matter from which party, honored her with standing ovations. So I um, can imagine what, and by the way, the man in the picture is Matteo Salvini, ultra-right politician. Um, I was once in uh, playing a role in the Society of Petroleum Engineers, at, and at that time, um, I was at the fall conference in, in America, and when the president handed over the gavel to the next president, the uh, leaving president was a woman, Kate Baker, and she got standing ovations. That is an atmosphere, I'll tell you. So thank you for listening, and God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas. <laughs>